This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. And now on to the show. Jeff, that was actually a big first for us. Uh, that was our first ad read we've ever done, and that's pretty exciting. So for our listeners, definitely go check out Warner Archive. And uh, before we get into the interview today, Jeff, I want to talk to you a little bit about that crazy Disney investor meeting last week that like blew everybody's minds. I don't think anyone expected that much content to be talked about. It really was unbelievable. I mean, it was an avalanche of uh, just every nerd project anybody could have imagined that they did uh they're doing <laughs> uh yeah. so it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see and i think what it really signals too if you look at it closely is it's just how hard the shift toward disney plus is going to be i mean they've really put their their eggs in that basket that's the, the the major template for success moving forward for disney and 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 you can imagine why a subscription-based entertainment network uh, is a very, very uh, powerful, uh, has a lot of allure to it if you're in the business of selling also toys and theme parks and all those things. It's just a direct pipeline to the consumer. Exactly. It's in, on the Star Wars stuff, you know, people, I feel like the past couple of years, people have been saying more and more and more, we want more. And now Disney's like, oh, you want more Star Wars? Okay, here's 50 new things that you can check out in the next couple of years. So a lot to look out for. Um, I think there's a lot of great Marvel. I mean, they even talked about Nat Geo. They really just hitting it on all fronts moving forward. So um, that was that was just kind of baffling to me. Um, is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to? Or, I mean, well, really, just all of it. Um, you know, I, I, I there's like I'm looking forward to all of it. I really yeah. don't know which one to say because uh, uh, you know I could pick about five or six. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, the, you know, this, I haven't been this excited about Marvel movies since when they first released their first, you know, slate of movies, but uh, yeah. So a lot to look out for on Disney plus. I think they've definitely earned, uh, you know, their, their spot in one of the top subscribed um, streamers. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then with the Indiana Jones and yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so much uh, coming through that pipeline uh, it'll be interesting to see too how the other streamers do when they lose more and more Disney properties on their, you know, feeds. You know, as mm -hmm. these things start to disappear from other, you know, outlets. Definitely. 
yeah, they have a, a, a lot of those other streamers have a lot of work to do. Yeah, exactly. But now onto some even more brighter and cheerier stuff. We have not one, but two guests with you today. Is that correct? You got it. Yeah, we have a uh, Christmas double feature today. Uh, we are joined by uh, Mark Voger, who is a journalist uh, and a author. He uh, is on the East Coast, and he's got a new book called Holly Jolly, which I think is just a fantastic book. It's uh, sort of a coffee table size book almost, and uh, it's a uh, it's chock full of pictures and and uh, uh, it, it's an index basically of the history of Christmas in pop culture, uh, and by that it goes from television and film, but it also touches on things like uh, Christmas cards and and toys and and uh, songs and uh, it's really a, a pretty impressive collection. So we have Mark on the show today and then joining us again is an old pal. It's uh, Michael Giltz, the journalist uh, who uh, has done a lot of reporting out in New York. He's based in Alabama these days, but he uh, is also my old college buddy and he is uh, a deep dig guy when it comes to popular culture. He knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, definitely. It's fun to see y'all's dynamic after all these years. And, uh, you know, he's currently holding the world record for the most appearances on Jeff Boucher's Mindspace. That's exactly right. Although I think uh, you and I are tied for first and he's second, actually. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guest appearances, I guess I should say. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's Christmas time and it's just, we all wish we could be with everybody in the way that we have in past Christmases as far as uh, actually being in rooms with people or visiting. Uh, that's going to be a little tough. So it's a nice Christmas to have an old friend by the show again. Yes, definitely. And um, on that note, you we're going to talk a lot about Santa Claus today. I was curious, Jeff, if you had any fun experiences with the Santa Claus or if you have a favorite Santa Claus or anything on that. You know, I um, just like everybody, I have photos of my uh, kids just freaking out on Santa's <laughs> lap. And uh, uh, so th those are pretty good. Uh, I don't have a lot of strong memories of Santa when I was a kid, but you know, it's a funny thing is I don't ever remember believing in Santa. I actually don't, but it was different for me because I was so into comic books and I was so into star Wars. So like by the time I was four or five, I was reading comics and, and loved Superman and Batman. And then when I was seven, star Wars came out and I read all those comics. And um, I never believed that Superman or Batman was real, but that didn't make it less interesting to me. Uh, and it did make Santa less interesting to me that he wasn't uh, a real guy. Yeah, I mean, just like just like Superman or Batman, he is just a fun fictional character. And hopefully all of our listeners under the age of 12, we did not just ruin Santa Claus for, but, you know, um, I guess it's time. If they're listening to the show, they should uh, know that <laughs> Santa's not real. But uh, anyways, uh, unless you have anything else, we can get to the episode. Oh, no, let's get to it. Well, uh, welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with uh, my intrepid producer, Evan Kopp. And this week we have a special, a special guest co-host, Michael Giltz. How are you, Michael? I'm great. Glad to be back on the show. You're the first repeat guest in the history of the franchise. <laughs> I'm, I'm back in Mindspace. You're back in Mindspace. Uh, I think you're trapped here. We'll see if we ever let you go. We'll see how it goes. And then we have a, a, a guest with us this week who is a 
a fellow who's going to help us with our Christmas conversation. We're going to talk about Santa Claus today. Uh, Mark, how are you, sir? Mark Voger. Hey, thank you. How are you doing, Jeff? And, and, and uh, how are you doing, Michael? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today because you are the author of Holly Jolly, um, which is a title that makes me want to sing. As soon as I hear it, I just start singing. Uh, Holly Jolly's from Tomorrow's, uh, Tomorrow's Publishing, is that right? Yeah, Tomorrow's, uh, they are uh, best known for their comic book stuff, but they've, in recent, you know, five, six years, they've been branching out into pop culture history. Yeah, I've seen a lot of their books, and um, I think this is one of the very best ones. I, I wanted to congratulate you on it. I think it's a really uh, terrific uh, collection of, of Christmas. From your lips to God's ears, Jeff. No, just kidding. Well, the one thing I like about the book is my first question was going to be, did you find yourself sometimes drawn to write about something because you got a great image of it? But I see that you didn't just write the text. You also helped design the book. And this is obviously a great coffee table book. It's very visual. So tell us about finding the images that you used in the book and how sometimes I imagine you found a great image and said, what's the story behind this? Well, thank you, Michael. Um, uh, uh, Jeff and I were talking earlier. We're, we, we both are, have backgrounds in, in newspaper journalism and Really, my job all my career, 40 years, was as a newspaper page designer. But I was like, uh, I always wanted to write. So I always wrote, you know, despite, uh, you know, uh, people saying like, you don't, you don't belong, your byline doesn't belong in the paper. But I, I finally, you know, I finally found my niche. And so writing and designing is something that I always did. So, so basically, with, with a project like Holly Jolly, what I actually did was, I've been doing it for so long that I... I, I do the layout first and then I get a word count and then I write to fit the word count. And I could just look at it and say, mm, I need to say a little bit more about that topic or, Ooh, I'm, I'm going to be hard pressed to fight to fill that space. And then, and then, and then that's the way I do it. But you're very that much super, that is super old school in the newspapers. You'd have to cut out a few words to get one line up off. So it would fit in the box. So oh, yeah. like people today with blog posts are like, I'll write 40,000 words on Rudolph. You know, they, yeah. they don't stop. Exactly. And, and we're, we're, we're a dying breed. And, and, you know, like I say, about 18 or 19 years left uh, in, of life. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It, for, so first you're gathering images. So, uh, so, so and then you're right. Uh, like, uh, I mean, I, when I found the, uh, a, a really nice uh, print of the Thomas Nast uh, influential Santa Claus illustration that sort of pointed the direction of Santa Claus from then on, um, I, I knew, I knew about it, but I didn't know the story behind it, you know? So that's what it was. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that I knew chapter and verse, like I, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas, Rudolph Grinch. I knew that stuff in, in my heart. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, stuff that surprised me. You know, one of the things that uh, surprised me in coming through the book, there's quite a few things that actually surprised me, uh, because there's so much information in it. Um, one of the things that jumped out was the first, uh, animated, television Christmas uh, production, the first animated production that was made for television uh, with a Christmas theme, I would not have guessed it. Mr. Magoo, I did not see that coming. Yeah. So that's that's a, just funny. That's a Magoo joke. I didn't see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were doing the, uh, the Johnny Carson. I did not know that, sir. But um, no, uh, it, and it is awful late. 1960 is really late for, uh, for the first uh, dedicated uh, proper TV special. And the reason I think was there were animated specials prior to that, but they were uh, maybe part of a series. So for instance, um, uh, there was the Bell Telephone Hour and 10 years before that, they did a, a, a Christmas special. It wasn't exactly animated, it was with puppets, but it's very charming. And then uh, Disney kind of pointed the way to the future. They had their 
their Sunday night series, Wonderful World of Disney. And um, they put together a clip show that, that was just scenes from, you know, Pinocchio or Snow White. And um, they, they kind of wrapped it in Christmas. They had a fresh animation of, uh, of uh, Mickey Mouse and Jiminy Cricket uh, at Christmas time. And they favored Christmas shorts that Disney had done over the years, such as Santa's Workshop. And um, Donald Duck was in one where he chopped down a tree that Chip and Dale were sleeping in. And, um, and so they, they, they put that together. And it was a ratings bonanza. And then they mm-hmm. found that they could keep running it. So people were paying attention. Like, and then finally in 1960, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Wow, that's fantastic. And then, of course, a few years after that, Charlie Brown's, which uh, is one that uh, we all remember. I think that one was kind of, uh, there's everything that came after it and everything before that as far as uh, Christmas animation. Yeah, and Mark, you spoke to Charles Schultz, didn't you? Yeah, I, I uh, was lucky enough to get an interview with Charles Schultz. Um, gosh, it wasn't, long, it wasn't long before he died. And um, uh, I, had, I guess I had about a half hour with him on the phone. Very sweet man. He's been asked at all, but I, as a as a journalist, he tried to even if you're asking the same question, try to make it not sound like the same question. But really, most of the time, I, I wanted to talk about that Christmas special because, as much as he achieved with this with the comic strip, gosh, I think that Christmas special is like the pinnacle. I mean, you know, it, it it's it's so warm and it, and it did so much that Christmas specials dared not do up to that point. It had um, Linus reciting um, Luke. It had a uh, Charlie Brown right at the top saying it's Christmas, but I don't, but I'm not feeling it. Yeah. It, it, it had a depressing air and the sponsor Coca-Cola, they didn't like it at all when they first watched it. And um, the, the it team, polar bears. what's that? I said it needs polar bears. That's what uh, yeah. If only they had more polar bears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But um, they, uh, and it's believed, uh, it was believed by Charles M. Schultz and, and, and uh, that the uh, special would not have aired except for it was so late. It was too late to pull it. And they thought it was going to be a disaster. And Coca-Cola didn't like the jazz music by Vince Guaraldi. And <laughs> uh, all that stuff worked so much in its favor. Yeah. Well, Michael and I were talking about this uh, not too long ago about, you know, I mean, the, the real, uh, the, the, the unique nature of Peanuts and, and its tone and, and the, the, the austere simplicity of it uh, and, and uh, the, the emotional resonance of it are, are so... Uh, different and that was why it was so successful is because it, it really you know in an era when people were reading you know uh, Prince Valiant like you know uh, Peanuts shows up in just like a different cadence it was like uh, I could walk into a, a, a beatnik coffee shop after you know uh, you know 40 years of listening to uh, Bing Crosby. Yeah and I think it's because like the old guard the, the, the all the, the funny strips before that they were always looking for the gag and and Schultz never really looked for the gag. He, yeah. he, he might have a wordless laugh sound and you know, and, and it's, it's funny, but it's more soul funny than ha ha funny. To me, it, doesn't it make it soul uh, destroying that, uh, I guess, maybe not soul destroying. It, it's kind of uh, distressing that uh, to see the Peanuts movie that came out. Uh, if there was a, a, a franchise or a character or a set of characters that did not need a CG <laughs> uh, depth of field portrayal, it's Peanuts. I mean, this is the last thing you would want to do with Peanuts is to turn it into something that has, uh, that is uh, paradoxically both has depth and is shallow. Yes, and uh, I absolutely agree. Um, it also, it also, the most important thing is, is the hand of Charles Scholes 
uh, guiding those those beautiful ink lines. And um, you know, he 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 drew every one of those strips. But for some of the uh, products, like the lunchbox, the comic books that um, I think Dell put out, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and the Charlie Brown animation, um, that was formed out to other artists. But they were they, they all seemed to capture him. Like that's the great thing about that Charlie Brown Christmas special is. Uh, they, they fretted over the fact that they formed it out to several animators and some, some things weren't consistent. Uh, but, but one thing that was consistent was that they captured the look of Charles Schultz's hand. Yeah. You know, taking peanuts and turning it into CGI is like looking at Sunday in the Park with George and saying, too many dots. You know, we should fill all that in. It's, it's funny that you say Coca-Cola is the sponsor of that first airing of a Charlie Brown Christmas special because if I had to guess... I would think that my first memory of Santa Claus probably came from a Coca-Cola ad, as wow. it probably did for a lot of people, because that image of Santa that drew upon earlier images, uh, you know, really became a way a lot of people saw Santa Claus. I'm not sure when that began. Do you know, Mark? Here I am trying to stump you. I'm not trying to yeah, put you no. in jeopardy mode here. No, it's uh, 30, 1932, and, uh, which is a long time ago, you know. And, um, it's, it's, and they, it was color reproduction, um, Haddon Sundblom is the artist, uh, Michigan-born artist that you're referring to. And um, earlier I mentioned Thomas Nast, but I think it was Haddon Sundblom who really finally took maybe the, the Nast Santa Claus and softened everything, put a painterly glow on top of it. And the Santa Claus that we know to this day, I don't think he'll ever, he'll ever change. I mean, maybe Bruce Willis with a machine gun or something, but uh, the, tr- the, the Santa Claus that, we, that, that still exists with the uh, chubby, uh, che- red cheeks and the red nose and and the smile and the the, the thick black belt that was that was all uh, really came together with Haddon Sundblom he was a uh, uh, a pinup specialist pinups was an uh, an old form um, the feminine form he's a master of the feminine form pinups and that's what he did and um, uh, but his Santa Claus he kept painting that for Coca Cola from uh, the 30s at least through the 60s maybe later. Santa was drawn by a pinup artist. <laughs> well, you know, when I found that, when I found that out was that he had done a Playboy cover in the eighties. And I was like, isn't that too uh, bloody or sexy for Haddon Sunblom? And then I found out, Oh no, that's his, that's his thing. Santa wow. Claus was, was the, uh, you know, the, the side gig. That's funny because yeah, Joe Schuster, the guy that uh, the first artist for Superman back when Action Comics and one came out, uh, he did some pinup work that uh, came out a few years ago. Collected it was, uh, it's very jolting to see because everybody looks like Clark and Lois, uh, except they <laughs> have cat of nine tails and they're all tied up and there's a lot of spanking. Um, but it's uh, it is interesting to see that 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 version of Santa uh, is. A classic one, and it, it, it's interesting that we know the, the shapes and contours of Santa, even though he does change so much. Uh, I have a theory, and I think Mark, you'll probably agree with me. I took a look at the timeline in your book, and you mentioned the, uh, the 1898 Santa Claus, uh, the British short, that with the release of that, that you could argue, I think, pretty, pretty uh, credibly that Santa Claus is the longest enduring character in the history of film. You know, I never thought of that, Jeff. It's 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 quite possible. Um, you know, the uh, and, and the amazing thing about about that Santa Claus is he looks more like what we kind of think of as Father Christmas, the long hooded robe. You know, uh, it was Sunblom. You know, well, one of the, he he evolved, but Sunblom finally gave him that kind of uh, the the cotton ball on the end and the fur trimmed hat. But um, 
uh, in that 1898 Santa Claus, what's remarkable about that is that still looks like Santa Claus, you know, even, even though it's very old fashioned looking. And um, 1898, it was still considered Victorian England. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, like Charles Dickens, Christmas Carol was published in 1843. So in the grand scheme, it wasn't that much later. It's, it's 50 years later. I can remember 50 years ago, like it was nothing, you know. And, um, and, the, and it had special effects because the, the gentleman who put it together uh, was a, what was called a, in those days, a, a, a magic lanternist. And mm. so on stage, he did, he did effects of appear, disappearing and appearing and uh, uh, using, using lanterns. And so he applied some of that to film. And, uh, that, and then you, so you'll see there's the children are dreaming about Santa Claus and then the real Santa Claus comes out. And it's, it's amazing for 1898. It really is. It's it's pretty. It's got uh, a lot of different innovations, and that was uh, made in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. England. Yeah. And you can find that online. People can look at that clip. It's pretty short, but you can find that by going to YouTube and and typing in BFI for British Film Institute and silent Santa Claus because it's a silent film, or just look up Santa Claus 1898. You'll find that entire little short there. I thought, well, what about Sherlock Holmes? And I looked it up, and the first appearance of Sherlock Holmes on film was a short in. 1900 so santa edged close. him out by two years not, not even close. close not even close <laughs> it's uh it is it's amazing and uh and of course santa claus remains uh so persistent in popular culture i mean we had kurt russell playing him last year there's a uh, and there's this a, year and this year and then there's a new uh disney uh movie with him and but there's a uh, you know santa claus we just can't get enough of the guy uh and there's some of the portrayals have really been classic obviously there's the, the the films that you know you think of miracle on 34th street and and things like that um but i wanted to talk a little bit about some of the tv appearances of santa and both live action and, and animated or or stop motion animated but uh you know there's two in particular mark and michael that i i thought think are interesting uh the alfred hitchcock presents uh which is maybe the first bad santa uh like the first really bad storefront santa in popular culture uh and uh the twilight zone which uh is you know also falls in the bad santa category if if you think being uh you know uh, a boozy um no good run down santa Claus is is, is the thing so uh well, what do you guys think of those two let me grab Art Carney because I'm not familiar with the uh, Alfred Hitchcock one, but Art Carney has to be the least likely Santa Claus imaginable. He's so thin and scrawny and he's played him three times. And what I love about the Twilight Zone episode is that it's maybe the first example, Mark, you would know better, of being Santa Claus as sort of self-help. Like taking on the mantle of Santa Claus will make you a better person, just like we see with the Santa Claus and Tim Allen. Art Carney is miserable and unhappy and a bit of an alcoholic because he can't help people and he sees so much pain and misery around him. And then he's given a magical you know, toy bag like Santa Claus carries around a sack and whatever you want or need, he can pull it out of the sack and provide it to you. And that makes him happier and it makes everybody around him happier, of course. So that sort of redemption idea of, you know, being Santa Claus or like Santa Claus can make you better. He's not just a magical figure out there, but he's someone that you can emulate and be like. It brings it all back to Christian and Christmas, doesn't it? Uh, but I found that very powerful. And the idea that Art Carney was cast still kind of boggles the mind. Yeah, they probably could have get Ralph Crampton. Like, uh, he, he would seem to be the guy yeah. you want. You exactly. want is get uh, is to get John, uh, um, Jonathan, John, John, uh, excuse me, Gleason, Jackie Gleason. I don't know what I'm calling him. Mark, uh, what about uh, 
What about oh, that? Yeah, the, the, the oh, yeah. Well, no, it's funny because, well, um, you're absolutely right, Michael, and, and leave it to Rod Serling, who was the, you know, uh, host and uh, lead writer on The Twilight Zone, and he wrote that episode. Um, I think it was called Night of the Meek. And uh, leave it to him to, 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 to blaze that trail. And two things. One is that um, to save money in the second season, they, they, instead of shooting it on film, they shot it on video, and they did all their cutting live like a soap opera. And that gave that piece, that art corny piece, uh, a, a sort of like a play-like feel. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, and, and Michael alluded to this, uh, an unlikely Santa Claus, because he's, yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a stew bum, but even his, like, his beard is filthy as if he's been oh, sleeping yeah. in that costume all year, let alone Christmas Eve. But uh, okay, uh, and Alfred Hitchcock, yeah, that, that was, uh, again, you're right. Uh, there, there is a connection there. Um, that is uh, the great Irish actor, Barry Fitzgerald. And uh, everybody remembers him from The Quiet Man with, with uh, John Ford's uh, The Quiet Man with John Wayne. But uh, it's, it's, it's a, an amazing episode. Uh, Barry Fitzgerald plays a, 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 an ex-con who's being um, uh, rehabilitated. And uh, so they decide that to make him a, a, a department store Santa Claus. And uh, he just says, okay. like, uh, yeah, I know. And they're explaining, and, and, you know, Barry Fitzgerald's delivery. And they're explaining to him about, you know, pushing certain toys. And he just goes, in his Irish brogue, he goes, sure, sure, I've shilled before, you know. And then they say, and, it, and then these kids are going to be uh, sitting on your lap telling you what they want for Christmas. And he says, kids, on me lap, you know. So it was just it, it, very funny. Um, the, art, the, the, the Twilight Zone one is, is, is more, more of a tragedy. You know, but of course it has humor in it uh, and it has an uplifting ending. But the Barry Fitzgerald one is, is uh, the Alfred Hitchcock one, is pretty much uh, played for laughs. Yeah. You know, I think I know, uh, Ms., uh, Mr. Giltz, I think I know what it is. Uh, Mark, is your tie uh, brushing against the, uh, uh, the table or something? Because I think That's I did right. that on the radio once. Like uh, I was on a radio show and I had a tie on and I heard it. A little silky slither followed you everywhere. Yes, I, I I don't even know how to answer that. But we should I'll, point I'll, out it was a Christmas tie. So well done there. Yeah. I'll, um, by the way, I'll take off my shirt if need be. <laughs> <laughs> that would be back to the pinups. Uh, no, now the that brings us to Sexy Santa. To yeah. me, uh, I, I know that Evan, uh, your producer, is that the right title? I know yeah. that Evan once said, uh, not a big fan of Santa Baby. Right. And I can understand that it gets overplayed a lot. But I think it may be one of the first songs that really introduced sex into the Christmas Carol canon. Uh, yeah. Baby, It's Cold Outside is not quite a Christmas song. But Santa Baby really does inject until you get to Elvis in 57 when he's singing Santa Claus is back in town, baby. And he's ready for action. He really is. You're like, oh, my God, Santa is on the make. And yeah. I think before him, you know. Uh, that Eartha Kitt song really does introduce the idea of sex into the Christmas song and Christmas culture, which isn't really common before then, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. And it, it's interesting when uh, we all try to put so much into Christmas and, you know, and everything uh, that we put into Christmas comes back at us in a different way. Uh, I was intrigued. Uh, another tidbit I found in Mark's book was that um, the first Black Santa uh, was much earlier than I anticipated, like the, uh, in the 1940s. Uh, and, and I would have thought that that would have been, I don't know, I just assumed that maybe when James Brown started doing Christmas stuff, that maybe that was around the time that we first started seeing an image of Black Santa. But Mark, we, um, it went back to uh, the early 40s, is that right? Yeah, but that was the first uh, department store Santa. 
Certainly. Uh, oh, neat. Uh, people Even have, yeah. People have been playing uh, Santa, um, you know, for, you know, probably, probably, you know, privately a lot. Um, I think there was, uh, uh, oh, who was it? Who's that great, uh, great actor? Um, Bill Bojangles Robinson. He played Santa in a, in a uh, Christmas parade in Harlem. Um, you know, so, so yeah, there have been black Santas before, but, but certainly a dearth of them in, in popular culture, in media, you know, you, uh, you know, you, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm a, uh, uh, seven time, uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon handler. And my thing is, um, I, of course, I didn't do it this year because of the, the COVID. But um, my thing is, um, I wish that there was a hashtag called uh, Macy's Santa so white, because I think that we're long overdue for a black Santa Claus in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, yeah. You know, it, that would just be a great day. You know, a good day of healing. Everybody would be like, Santa, you know, and He's black. Of course he can be black. You know? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Santa had kinky hair? I think Brooke Benton sang that in Soul yeah. Santa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, um, and on the topic of storefront Santa, or not storefront, but uh, department store Santas, that tradition uh, went back to 1890. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, that yeah, that's crazy. But that was kind of like the beginning of um, even, even like kind of department stores, the, the turn of the century. Because uh, you know, if you if you if you watch Gene Autry or Roy Rogers movies, you know that uh, you just went to a general store and you said, "I'd like some uh, you know uh, uh, some shoelaces, please." And then the guy would just and the uh, the, the concept of putting uh, putting merchandise out where the common person could look at them and it was like you know revolutionary, you know. And of course, it started in cities. It started in you know like a, a lot in New York and uh, Chicago, and um, so, uh, so Santa Claus, so somebody kind of privately as store came up, came up with that idea and made history. And so, uh, James Edgar of Brockton, uh, <laughs> is, uh, was the first, uh, store Santa. Yeah. Uh, on record. Yes. Wow. And, and um, so Billy Bob Thornton, I was that guy. Thank you. <laughs> and let's talk about some of the bad Santa. So, I mean, Billy Bob Thornton, you guys mentioned Art Carney, um, and you know the Hitchcock uh, Santa, uh, that he's not necessarily uh, on the doing the right thing all the time. Um, who are some of the other Santas that you guys don't like? I, I kind of like the. Uh, he's not so much a bad Santa, but he's a uh, kind of a badass Santa. Uh, is in Rise of the Guardians, an underrated animated film from a few years back uh, from DreamWorks that had uh, Alec Baldwin as a uh, Santa Claus who's full of Bolshevik. Uh, he's a uh, he's. <laughs> A, a Ruski, he's, and he's all tatted, he's tattooed, and he has these big forearms, and and uh, seems to be uh, there. There's no there's no direct link to the Russian mob mentioned, but I think that there's some there there is some uh, suggestion there that uh, there's reason for suspicion. He's one of the ones I like. Just to hear be, a, be a shame if anything happened to that nice Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, we got this naughty list. See, and uh, you're on it. See, uh, I don't know why he's from. Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> the Russian. But uh, who are some of the less than ideal Santas that you guys like, or uh, maybe less than jolly? Michael, well, just you for, first. Just for casting alone, obviously, Mel Gibson as Fat Man uh, in a new movie that just came out this year. They're intending to sort of rile you up with uh, that casting. And the character himself is kind of a bad Santa, too. Uh, 
Billy Bob Thornton, of course, is playing a store Santa, not an actual Santa Claus. But normally when you look at the casting of people and who they are, whatever their personal lives, they fit that friendly aura. You know, you've got you've got people that you think of as charming and nice and sweet playing Santa Claus. You know, Jim Broadbent, Sebastian Cabot, uh, you know, uh, the just people that you know fit the role charles durning james earl jones all these people seem like they could be a santa claus and the weird ones the offbeat ones like paul giamatti as fred claus santa's you know what is he his brother his jealous brother yeah you know so but john goodman that's who you expect to see richard griffiths so there aren't a lot of bad santas in my mind that i can think of until you get to some slasher films yeah that's true that's true and and that, and, and uh, even going uh sort of overarching from that um the, the idea of vulgarity in in, uh, in Christmas movies um, is uh, you know a, a recent phenomenon, like let's say since since the seventies or eighties. And you mentioned that Robin Williams' "Merry Friggin' Christmas." I mean, I I never even heard of that that one, but um, you know, certainly movies like Bad Santa and uh, uh, and the, the slasher Santa movies, where um, a topless girl is impaled. Uh, actually, it's Linnea Quigley is impaled on uh, antlers by a maniacal Santa Claus, like. Those kind of movies I, I always think of as um, the, the movies that when, the, when all the relatives are together in one house and the kids are finally to bed and you're just drinking beer, you'll put on a slasher Santa movie. Put on Silent Santa. Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. <laughs> I have a theory beyond my Santa Claus is the longest enduring uh, film character theory. I also have a theory that, that is probably fairly safe to say, but this is the most famous piece of clothing in history, isn't it? I mean, is there anything that's more recognizable than Santa Claus? I mean, Superman's suit or Santa Claus's suit, really, I think, I guess Superman's more distinctive because it has an S on it. And Santa Claus is, is more of a ensemble with a, a color, uh, but it's gotta be, it's gotta be right up there. There's, there's not a whole lot of things that are more recognizable than Santa's suit or Superman's suit. The only other thing I can think of is Marilyn Monroe's dress and some like it hot. <laughs> That's just an idea. That's just a famous wind, a famous breeze, I think. Yeah, and, and if you're not standing in that spot, it's just a dress. Like, it's, a, it's not famous on any other street unless the wind is blowing. Yeah. I can't think of anything more uh, that's more memorable in terms of clothing. Certainly, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, just generic clothing, togas, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what could be longer lasting, but no, that, that's pretty, pretty much seems like, you know, who that is as soon as you see it. And of course, what, when did that tradition of people hitting the bars dressed as Santa Claus take off? Uh, that of course is a, a modern phenomenon of Santa Claus. Everybody wanting to be Santa Claus. Well, yeah. everybody does it. They don the costume, they go out and it started in a nice way. People having fun going from bar to bar. It's fun to suddenly be in Manhattan and see literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Santa Clauses all over the place. Confusing for the kids, but fun <laughs> for everybody else. I've always thought that uh, Santa Claus uh, suit is the best Halloween costume because nobody's expecting it in October. Ah. Yeah, I've never had the guts to do it though. And the I gut or the gut. Oh, thanks, Michael. That's good <laughs> stuff right there. That's really good. You really like that. Uh, you know, uh, Santa Claus, he wasn't necessarily bad, but I mean, we have him conquering Mars. He, he did some B-movie duty, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the 60s. He, he started showing up in some weird spots. Um, for, for you guys, if we go back to the sentimental Santa, the, the one that uh, kind of uh, has the uh, twinkle in his eye and, the, and, and the, the burnished holiday aura about him, is there one or two that, uh, that you really that really resonate with you guys? Well, the, one, the one that stri uh, 
springs to mind for me along those lines is uh, Edmund Gwen of in uh, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, especially when you mentioned twinkling eyes, because there's at least two scenes where I'm like, how did he do that? Because his eyes are twinkling. And, um, and he did, in fact, get, get the um, Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar for, for playing Chris Kringle in that 1947 film. And uh, the, the, neat, the, neat, uh, the conceit of that movie is... Um, uh, he, he wins the court case. He is the one, in, the one true Santa Claus. And he wins the hearts of, uh, of Natalie Wood and, and uh, Maureen O'Hara. But it's left to the, audience, the audience's discretion whether or not he really is Santa. It's almost like Jimmy Cagney. Did he turn yellow when he went to the chair in Angels with Dirty Faces? You know, and people, no, he didn't. He did it for the kids. <laughs> yeah, he did it for the kids. He did it for Father Jerry. But... Um, uh, so, so is Edmund Gwen Santa Claus or not? Well, logically, I guess he couldn't be. But the, the great thing about that movie is, I won't go on and on, but is they, 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 uh, they depict him as a real person. Like when he's in the Santa suit, he's, it's, it's understood that he's playing Santa, either in the parade or in the department store. Otherwise, he's just wearing, you know, old man tweed clothing. And he lives in a old folks home in Great Neck, you know, and, and, uh, and he never talks, says, oh, I'll get the elves to work on that one. He's always trying to figure out how to make somebody's Christmas wish come true in, in real world terms, you know. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It plays that kind of meta game with the viewer's head. It's a great performance. Uh, it makes that movie. The movie is just a, a, a it's been remade like three or four times, multiple times on television, live TV pr production, uh, TV movie versions. And you can see why it's so failsafe when you get to have the big scene at the finale in the courtroom case. But he's so good in that. And I have to say, Richard Attenborough did a really nice job in the completely unnecessary feature film remake. Uh, that one can just be completely forgotten. But he was quite good. Certainly a much better actor than he is a director. Ooh. But Michael, a it, random shot. That's <laughs> sorry. Yeah, but Michael, it broke, it broke my heart that in that movie, they took Macy's out. Like Macy's mm. didn't give them permission because as I said, I'm a balloon handler for the parade. And, and when, and 34th street's the very final, you know, uh, street that we make a ride on at the end of this parade. And I, I always think like, Oh, this is just like a real life version of Miracle on 34th street. And I always flash back. And then they, for some reason, those idiots uh, didn't give the permission to use Macy's. What a what a dumb idea! This year, did you walk the entire block? Oh no! I well, uh, they they didn't have us. They um, you know, of all the hundreds of blue handlers, they didn't ask us all back because um, they only did something small and kind of pop up because they didn't want crowds to gather. So we got so a lot of us got the year off. Well, Edmund. Gwen certainly, I'm sorry, Jeff. Uh, no. I mean, Gwen certainly has to be the best live action Santa. I think almost everybody will just immediately gravitate to him. For me, the best voiceover Santa would be Mickey Rooney, who played Santa Claus in the Rankin Bass classic, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which for me is like the Citizen Kane of TV Christmas specials. All <laughs> fair shakes to a, a Charlie Brown Christmas, but Santa Claus is Coming to Town. What an amazing voice cast, what great songs. Uh, it's just a terrific thing. And Mickey is so good in that role. I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought of him, but he's just, he's got that Andy Hardy spirit and he yeah. brings it to Santa Claus and it works a charm. No, you're absolutely right. That, that one's magical and the economy of it. Like, you know, every single thing, there's nothing you would change in it. There's nothing you would take out. And, you know, you look at the running time and boy, they got a lot in there, but it never feels hurried. It's, it's one of the most efficient, uh, you know, pound for pound Christmas uh, downloads you can get.
Yeah, you know, Mark, I was almost disinvited from the show because I made the fatal mistake of confusing the Winter Warlock and what TV special he was in. Uh, he is the Winter Warlock, and uh, uh, that's would be actor Keenan Wynn. I was confusing my Rankin Bass specials, and they were like, mm, I don't know if you're really meant for this. Uh, <laughs> but I did, when looking up Keenan Wynn, I did find out something I imagine Jeff probably knew, but it's a fun comic book tie-in. That's that he was cast as Perry White in Superman the movie. But he collapsed during production and was rushed to the hospital and had to be replaced by Jackie Cooper. Wow. wow. He's a kid from Blue Rascals. I, I did not know that. I did yeah. not know that. He was oh. Perry White. Oh, Miss Crabtree. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and Michael, I wanted to mention um, uh, Mickey Rooney, of course, reprised the Santa Claus for Rankin Bass in, in uh, I think it was the next one, The Year Without a Santa Claus, 74, exactly. the, one that, the one that had the uh, heat miser and the snow miser. Well, that's, that's why I made my mistake. I thought Keenan Wynn played Mr. Freeze, uh, Snow Miser, instead, of course, being the voice of the Winter Warlock, where he took one foot in front of the other and learned how to walk. And, of course, Mr. Freeze is a, is, lives in Gotham City. Mr. Freeze mm -hmm. is Batman's bad guy. And one of <laughs> the few uh, major comic book characters who were introduced on television first and then migrated to comic books. Oh. He existed on the 1966 series first uh, and, then, and then made his way into comics, uh, much like Harley Quinn in the animated Batman made it into comics years and years later. We've sort of hinted at A Christmas Carol, which is sort of the DNA in so many Christmas specials and lots of TV shows do a Christmas special. Every, you know, oh, let's have Fonzie be visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. Santa Claus to me is sort of embodied by the ghost of Christmas present. That's sort of maybe his, the kernel of where he began. I don't know, maybe there's earlier precursors to that idea of Father Christmas, but how we see him today sort of seems to spring out from that guy before he pulls back the robe and reveals the poor starving children at, underneath his robe. But uh, A Christmas Carol, <laughs> there are so many versions of that. Uh, do you have a favorite one, Mark? Or do you think the most clever adaptation that you've seen in some other medium, like a TV show or something? Well, you're absolutely right, Michael. Um, a, a Christmas Carol, I always think is the, uh, it's blasphemy to say this, but I think it's the greatest Christmas story ever written, including the New Testament. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I went to Catholic school and I'm still afraid of none. Take that, Matthew. They're yeah, looking for yeah. you now, pal. I'll tell you that. Well, yeah. but anyway, uh, the, uh, my, my, my favorite is definitely uh, very easy for me to answer the 1951 uh, version, British version starring the great Alistair Sim as, yeah. as Ebenezer Scrooge. But as, 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 as you've uh, hinted at, Michael, the, uh, there's a Scrooge surrogate in, in, in so many Christmas movies and in culture, like, you know, the, such as the abominable snow monster and the Rudolph special, uh, old man Potter played by Lionel Barrymore yeah. in, uh, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, um, is a Scrooge surrogate. He's the Scrooge of Bedford Falls. But I've always thought it was interesting that he doesn't, get redeemed mm. he, he stays a skunk to the end yeah and, and uncle billy never got his comeuppance i think uncle billy needed a beatdown. i'm sorry well jimmy stewart came close man you you fool you know like he came close yeah he shook he, him he shook him he yeah. was a jerk he I, I really think that he was a jimmy stewart was a jerk in that movie oh he's, totally he's uh you know stop playing that stupid silly song <laughs> and all the and i'm gonna shake the dust of this town uh, this two-bit town off me. Meanwhile, they're all standing around him saying, we're still living here, you know. We're, yeah. we're going we're gonna to die in Bedford Falls, you know. We don't need characters bringing atmosphere to the place. Oh, I that love, guy. I love Nick, that. He's wonderful, yeah. 
So for for Christmas Carol, I I I'm a fan of the George C. Scott one. I really like the George C. Scott one. I know it's kind of uh, came late in the game compared to the classic ones, uh, but uh, there's just something about his performance in that. And then Michael and I were talking, I think, about uh, Patrick Stewart's stage one, uh, the one man show, which was just just nutty, uh, but I thought great. It was tremendous. And right now this year, I just watched a, a live Tate performance, which doesn't do justice to what they did. But Jefferson May is a great actor, does a new uh, version of A Christmas Carol called A Christmas Carol Live or A Christmas Carol Online that you can find online. And it benefits local theater companies every year, theater companies all over the country. And I assume the world put on shows like A Christmas Carol and often A Christmas Carol. And that's just a guarantee money or that's going to fill the coffers for the rest of the year. And of course, they can't do that this year. So people are doing things online or trying to help them out. It's a great one man show, but with a lot of special effects and stuff. So it's different enough from Patrick Stewart. But it's well worth checking out A Christmas Carol Online uh, with Jefferson Mays is a, a really good production. That's great. You know, the uh, there's uh, with The Christmas Carol also, uh, I saw a production of it. I don't think I told you this, that is the worst i saw the worst moment i've ever seen for a, a well-known actor on stage just trapped in a horribly awkward extended humiliating scenario and it was a christmas carol in los angeles at hollywood and highland the kodak theater where you go to see the, the academy awards uh, ceremony but not when it opened when it first opened one of the very first things they had in there was a christmas carol uh, and it was starring Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown from uh, Back to the Future, Jim Mignatowski from Taxi, one of the actors that we've been watching for many, many years. But you haven't seen him like I've seen him <laughs> because they were doing a, uh, a special effects heavy, falling, plummeting, going through Christmas, past, present, future. Uh, and a partition came down and, and he was under it and it sat on him. And he's like, oh, and it was supposed to transition. Then the lights are supposed to go down and something else was supposed to happen. Like that thing was supposed to leave. Other people were supposed to come on stage. Whatever was supposed to happen next didn't. And he's there. He's like, oh, and it was like the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Part 2 where they're falling and they get tired of yelling and they stop for a little while and they look around and then they start yelling again. Oh. <laughs> it was like that. It was excruciating. It went on. I mean, I think he might still be there. I'm not sure. It, it, it was like it was like three solid real world minutes of Ooh, that's a just long watching, time on stage. Just watching Christopher Lloyd, like, ah, like he's looking around, somebody do something, and I was like, you know, this is he's trapped. This is uh, this isn't even really happening. This is all in his mind, and this is his punishment from uh, something. He must be a bad person because uh, it was bad. Do you have a terrible Christmas gift or a terrible Christmas memory, Mark? Something that haunts you? Christmas is supposed to go great, but we see in the best movies and think sometimes they're really challenging. I, I, have, I have one that, that often gets told when we're sitting around the dining room table. It's in Holly Jolly. Um, just that uh, I, I could cartoon a little when I was a kid. So my folks were always trying to encourage my talent. And this one Christmas, they gave me a wood burning kit. I was little. I mean, I, and, and my, and my advice to parents is never give a child something that can sear human flesh unless you know for certain that they understand it's safe usage and, and purpose. So anyway, so my dad plugs it in and he says, don't ever, ever touch 
this end, you know, don't ever do that. Then he shows me how it works. And then I, uh, I do it. And then he's satisfied. He goes upstairs. Now I didn't understand what he really, what he meant. I just thought he meant you're going to get in trouble if you touch it. I didn't know that <laughs> it so would cure your flesh. So as soon as my dad was gone, I said to my little brother, Brian, who was oh. a toddler, I said, Brian, quick, grab this. And he puts his tiny little hand trustingly oh. on, on that thing. And then he screams, which you can't blame him because anybody whose flesh is being seared, you scream. And um, the, the end of the story is that the, um, the wood burning kit was thrown outside and it, was, it had been snowing and you just saw steam rising up from where the wood burner landed. What's the best? Did they do that with your little brother too? Just let him cool <laughs> off his hand by tossing him out into the snow? That wouldn't have been a bad idea, but you know. <laughs> Poor mistakes, kid. Mistakes were made. That's great. Uh, you know, what about, uh, you know, as far as Mrs. Claus, is there any good Mrs. Claus? Like, do we have a, one that's memorable? Do, 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 I mean, she can, I, I think, I, oddly, the one that she means the most to me in is, is the uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, like origin story of Santa, where she's young and hot. But she, <laughs> she, but she has that like weird solo song where everything gets real that's, the, that's the only not good song in that special it's a bit it's a bit much it's, yeah. it's almost like psychedelic right it's almost like you know really yeah. early 70s you know it's yeah it's weird. like the big lebowski sequence you know like you know you expect like uh uh you know kenny rogers to start singing it was really trippy um, well the next the next one i think had a memorable santa uh, mrs santa um the year without a santa claus also with mickey rooney as we said earlier and that was uh shirley booth who I mean, everybody was good as Hazel. Yeah, she had that great, you know, naturalistic voice. It was actually the last thing she ever did. It was her last, uh, you know, filmed project. And uh, she's, uh, apparently she was amazing on stage. Everybody who, of a certain age, who saw her on Broadway. Um, Come back, little Sheba. Yeah, that one in particular. They're like, oh, nobody could touch her. But uh, I love Hazel. I mean, Hazel's just wonderful. Mr. And, B. Uh, yeah, Mr. B. You know, it, it, she's such a, you know, Busybody, that Hazel, you know, but um, uh, so she was good. Uh, um, uh, who else? Who else played her? Um, Angela Lansbury played her in a TV movie once. I I haven't seen it, and I hope to go to my grave never having seen it. Well, there's a wish. There's that. <laughs> we can give that to you in two different ways. <laughs> well, it. you know, there's there's picture books galore. Of course, one of them is Auntie Claus, which proved quite popular. Where was Santa Claus's aunt who whisks a little boy away, much like Auntie Mame, and makes his holiday special. But I have a great Mrs. Santa that I love, and it's from my most uh, underappreciated Santa Claus movie, and that's the animated film. Arthur Christmas from 2011. It's a terrific film with a great all-star cast. It's certainly family friendly, but they do say in the film that the conceit is that Santa Claus is a job handed down from you know generation to generation. So you wanna make up your mind about how young kids you wanna show it to, but it's certainly family friendly. And it's just a great movie where James McAvoy is Arthur Christmas. He's oh. not quite up to the job. He's a bit bumbling, but when Santa Claus uh, forgets to get one gift to one little girl. Uh, it's in the back of the sleigh. 
Arthur is determined to make sure her Christmas doesn't get ruined, and he goes off on a quest to do it. Grandpa Santa Claus, played by Jim Broadbent, or I should say voiced by Jim Broadbent, who was the 20th Santa, he's along for the ride. He'll, you know, he's barely with it. He doesn't know what's going on much anymore, but he's ready to make sure it happens. And Imelda Staunton is the voice of Mrs. Claus, and she's Mrs. Santa, I should say, and she's just terrific, too. No nonsense, very straightforward. Hugh Laurie is in there as sort of a more you know, businessman like Santa Claus. Oh, we got to get it be efficiency, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas James McAvoy understands the true spirit of Christmas. It's a great movie. Very few people saw it. I highly recommend it. That, oh. That's totally off my radar. I'm so excited. I'll, I'll definitely watch that. Oh, it's terrific. That's great. And, you know, one of the things that uh, um, uh, I noticed in the book, I love what you did, Mark, with the, uh, the Bowie and uh, Bing Crosby uh, exchange to do that in comics form. I thought that was really very uh, uh, out of the box thinking and I think it really worked really well. I didn't realize until this week on Twitter, I noticed that Duncan Jones, the great filmmaker, did source code and is the son of Davy Jones, who of course is not the Davy Jones from the monkeys, but the Davy Jones that became David Bowie. Um, he, he, he tweeted about uh, attending the shooting or uh, being on the set of that Christmas special um, and with it, when his dad sang with Bing Crosby. So he was there um, at the time. I know that David mentions him in the, in the patter that they have, uh, the pre-song patter, but uh, I didn't realize that he was standing there. So that must've been a pretty, pretty nice uh, uh, Christmas memory for him. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a piece that um, really bridged generational gaps. I mean, uh, I, I, I never hear Bing Crosby referred to as like, Mr. Christmas or the most Christmassy singer that ever lived. But I think he is because he has so many of those songs and, you know, notwithstanding, you know, forget about White Christmas, put that aside for a second, the greatest selling uh, song of all time. And, uh, you know, a, a, a hit single, a, a movie, and it was in two movies that were both with Bing, Melika Mickey Maka, and it, just so many of them. And then there he is at the end of his life. I mean, literally because he had a little more than a month left on the clock. And, um, and there he is, like, jamming with David Bowie. I mean, that's crazy, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's just some improbable. And, yeah. it, and they, it, it just works so beautifully. And I think because um, they're both kind of funny guys, you know, uh, if, if you ever delve into either of them, they, I mean, Bing could get a line off. I don't know if he was, he, yeah. he was probably Daddy Dearest at, at home, but he could get a line off because he'd been making all those movies with, with Hope and everything, everybody. But, uh, and then Bowie, of course, was, uh, you know, always had those kind of uh, uh, ambitions, you know, film, filmic ambitions. And it just works beautifully. And it, it, it's just a real gift. And their voices blend so beautifully. And you, you hear one from the past and one from the present, you know. It's just, and, or one you know. from outer space, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, David Bowie's just great. Certainly Bing Crosby, so many great Christmas songs, huge Christmas albums. Uh, the, the songs he did with the Andrews sisters, like Meli Kalikimaki, uh, they're just just great. He certainly was the voice of Christmas for at least 50, 60 years. Yeah. Maybe nowadays not played quite as much. They don't go deep into the catalog unless you're listening to a really oldie station. I guess every year now you see uh, Michael Bublé's album comes back onto the charts. Maybe Mariah Carey is the voice of Christmas to people now. Fair enough. She's got the biggest hit for the last five or so years. But Bing Crosby is now and forever the voice of Christmas, at least in my mind. There's no way to think anything else. 
Yeah, I, th- I agree. I agree. But that points up to great Christmas albums, which we covered last week. Uh, well, we actually talked about great Christmas singles. We didn't talk so much about great Christmas albums. Was there one from your childhood, Mark, that or one that you discovered that you put in this book or, you know, album covers are so iconic for us. Christmas music gets played every year, no matter what your family played, whether it's Andy Williams, who I know you chatted with, or a Phil Spector's Christmas. And I know you also spoke with Darlene Love, that those albums just become part of your life and woven into the holidays. It's just not Christmas unless you hear blank, whatever album it may be. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, the, the Darlene Love song, um, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home and Andy Williams' uh, Most Wonderful Time of Year are certainly in, you know, one of the hundred songs in the top 10 of, of <laughs> You Have to Hear It This Year, you know. But um, uh, I guess uh, as far as albums go, um, I have a weird one for you guys. Um, I don't know if you remember these, but um, there were two tire companies, um, Goodyear and Firestone, <laughs> who put out these really cheesy compilation albums. Um, every year it was like an event. And uh, my dad was like a shipping foreman for a oil refinery in, in South Philadelphia. And he would just come home with these things. And, um, and we just put them on. And I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I know that it would have something like, something torturous like Jim Neighbors singing, you know, Oh Holy Night or something, you know, and then it would go to like, I don't know who, uh, Edie Gourmet, you know, like, it was just like, it was crazy, but it was the soundtrack of Christmas for, for us when we were little kids. Well, my dad worked for Goodyear for a number of years, and that's why I was born in Bermuda. And in South Florida, we got the great songs of Christmas by great artists of our time, collectors album, limited edition. If I could share my screen, you would see it right now. But that came courtesy of Goodyear at your local fire station. You filled up the tank. You got that album. This is like album number six in the series. But you've got, you know, Barbara Streisand, Johnny Mathis. And then you've got, you know, Percy Faith, Ray Conniff, Andy Williams, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, the, the new, new Christy Minstrels. But. Yeah, that, that album cover, I see that, and I just immediately get a, a, an infusion of Christmas. Yeah. You know, really, it's, it's amazing uh, that how much traction the Goodyear has. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. Oh. That's a dad joke at Christmas time. You, you know, I, 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 I didn't even plan it, but halfway through, I realized it was coming, and then I just doubled down. So There, there you go. The, there's, my, there's that Christmas album that, wow. I, that I recall so well from, Love it. from Goodyear. I, now, I, I know a lot about comic books, and, and we haven't talked much about comic books, and, and uh, we'll probably have to save it for another Christmas. Uh, we have another, at least another 18 or 19 of these to do. Uh, but uh, uh, I found out something. I learned something, Mark, from your book about uh, a comic book that I didn't know, and, and that's... That's, that's uh, not easy to do. It's not easy to do. I, I was unaware of the 324-page comic book 324 pages that's a phone book um that was released the uh, the christmas comics uh by uh fawcett like during the the heyday of captain marvel wow that i mean that, that's a quite a hefty book wow indeed i mean i've never seen one i've never even seen a photograph of one i, mm-hmm. I imagine not many more exist the, the amazing thing about about these and uh this was explained to me by a gentleman named uh pc paul hammerlink who is the uh editor of a, of a Fawcett Collectors of America, mm-hmm. which is a, a part of a magazine that Dumars puts out uh, called Alter Ego. And uh, he's, a, he's a Fawcett freak. He knows everything frontwards and backwards. And so, so I asked him, I said, like, what, what, what are these books? How can they, what are these page counts? A 324-page comic book. And what they were is, it, it's amazing. They, they would have 
remainder books that didn't sell, that they, they didn't get rid of their stock. So they just whipped up a new cover and they literally took the five, five random issues of, of remainder books and put the new cover on them and then sold that for 50 cents. So you, you can't, there's like, uh, no, I'm almost going to say no two are alike. Certainly two must be alike, but it, you never knew you could, be, you could, it could be five random books. So you could buy five copies and then, and there's one story that's not common to all of them, you know? So yeah. I, I wish I, I wish I could find one, but I imagine they're even, they've even disintegrated because my Lord, how, how does that even happen? How do you do that? You know, but yeah, yeah that's astonishing. That, that is weird. And, and of its time, you know, uh, the, early, the, the late 40s into the early 50s. Yeah, that's crazy stuff. I really it like crazy. That. What's also crazy is when people talk about the war on Christmas. I think we can all roll our eyes at that, but it's very clever because you want to accuse your enemy of what you're actually doing. There is, of course, no war on Christmas. Christmas is waging war on Thanksgiving, on Halloween, <laughs> and New Year's Day. They have taken over November. They have pushed past Thanksgiving. Christmas music begins right after the election this year. Right at the end of Halloween, Christmas stores are popping up. It's really swallowing up two, three months of the calendar year. It's unbelievable. You know, we have a strict uh, no Christmas music until Thanksgiving rule in my house. Um, my birthday usually falls on Thanksgiving, like every third or fourth year. And, uh, and so I, I've, I've planted a flag holding on to Thanksgiving. I've, 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 I've fought back. Uh, I have uh, guerrilla uh, warfare. Uh, in my favor, but it's not going well. Uh, apparently, Christmas is continues to sprawl. It's uh, appeasement is not working. Not me, fellas. Because uh, two years ago, I started Holly Jolly in earnest, and I and, it, and it, all my stuff was up, all my Christmas decorations and my my 1950s sparkly silver uh, aluminum tree. And I just thought, I'm not going to take this stuff down because I want to stay in the spirit. So That's two years later, I'm still looking at it. I'm thinking like maybe I will never take that tree down. <laughs> so artificial or live Christmas tree, Jeff? You know, we have five Christmas trees. We do one in each room. And uh, what are you, the Rockefellers? No, no, we just keep them. You know, like we get, they're little, but there's, it's, it's more about color schemes and, and there's they like- what are, you, Yvonne, what are you, Melania Trump? They all match <laughs> the different rooms. Do you have a blood red tree for the horror room? Well- the, the the season is young. We're nice. At, my sister lied. my sister Libet lied to the neighbors. We had six kids in our family and we moved from there. They were most were born in Canada and then my sister Libet and I were born in Bermuda. And when Bermuda's we were not young Bermuda's No, not. that's that's true. We were born in Bermuda, a different country, and then all of us moved to South Florida near Jeff, but not realizing that, so we missed out. But <laughs> Libet told the neighbors, we had six kids, and Libet told the neighbors, well, back in Bermuda, we all got our own tree. We would each have a full tree, and all our gifts would be under each tree. And they're like, wow, you're so lucky. But apparently, Jeff's got that right now. And there's more than one tree for every member of the family. Very nice. You know, my dad was born in Nassau. Ah, the Bahamas. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. And Bermuda, I have a pair of shorts. Random. <laughs> Michael, I think you just came up with a great idea for, uh, for the next uh, Christmas horror movie. First Lady's Christmas. And the, the climax <laughs> takes place in a room full of blood red Christmas trees. <laughs> or Kanye West's house. Uh, you could have Christmas at Kanye's house. That would be, <laughs> there's something scary about that as well. You know, there's uh, one thing, uh, I guess we should probably start wrapping it up we uh but one of the things uh um that i really really love at christmas is there's a recording that you guys may have heard that bing did um of white christmas but it's live on the radio and it was on armed forces radio and I oh think yeah it was 
the one in 1940, I want to say it was 43 or 44. Um, but, uh, you know, and just the, the emotion in his voice and the context and there is so much magic in Christmas and so much magic in Christmas music. Uh, and uh, uh, when it comes together, even if it's silly or if it's uh, uh, trite or um, even sometimes overly commercial, boy, when it works, it sure works. And, and it works uh, when Bing was singing for the, the troops and everybody was listening, thinking about coming back home or not. Uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, have you guys heard that one? I, I was just going to say, I, I've never heard it. I didn't even know there was a radio broadcast available. I'll, I'll run it down. But of course, the very first time the world heard White Christmas was on, on Christmas Day in 1941. Yeah. And of course, that was just a few months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that's what, and over the radio, uh, Bing Crosby introduced Irving Berlin's uh, White Christmas. Wow. Yeah, which he thought was, you know, he tossed it off and thought, well, that wasn't that much. But little did he know how big it would become. And that is part of the appeal at the time. It's obviously an enduring classic, but the context of hearing songs like White Christmas, I'll, I'll Be Home, and other songs where I'll Be Home for Christmas of Only in My Dreams, yeah. you know, and these songs where you're talking about, you know, going to take a sentimental journey. These are being heard by people all over the world who are not going to be able to come home uh, in 1942, 1943, 1944, and 1945. Obviously, the first year, most people were not joined up in the military, but that does add to that impact for that generation, for sure. It makes it so powerful. And then, Mark, you do a good job in the book of uh, drawing together the threads that how much stuff came out of that era, the wartime era, so many traditions and, and uh, the, the, the uh, emotional resonant, uh, resonance of it, I think, uh, definitely was emphasized in that, that era, right? Thank you, Jeff. And, and, and it's true. Uh, uh, and, and even when they finally made White Christmas in 1954, that movie was all about World War II nostalgia. They were, uh, you know, it, it starts off, you know, in, in a, in a uh, uh, overseas and, and amid heavy bombing. And, uh, and then they, in, in the end, it's a backstage r romantic comedy and they're trying to save their old army general's uh, resort because oh, there's right. no snow in Vermont, you know. So it's, so it's, it's World War II nostalgia uh, through and through. Well, I, um, this, is, uh, this has been really good. I, did I hear sleigh bells? <laughs> That's my tie again. <laughs> no, no, that's that's really good. I, I I feel like we should out we should have an outro with Christmas music. So and we can't afford it. So maybe we should stick with the jingle bells. Uh, I, I, wanna, I just heard that outside my window. <laughs> I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you guys coming on. I I, I swear I could do this all day. Um, it's so much fun. Uh, I I didn't even get to the Thin Man or or there's so many things I wanted to talk about, but uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's a strange time in the world, 2020, and uh, it's a good time for people to connect in any way they can, um, because they can't do it in most of the traditional ways. So it's very nice connecting with you guys, and I hope our listeners will be able to connect with some of this Christmas spirit. And uh, I can't wait to track down some of these oddities. Uh, and I wish you both a very, very happy new year. And it was nice meeting you, Mark. And the book is Holly Jolly, Celebrating Christmas Past in Pop Culture. It's in bookstores and online now. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Jeff. We, uh, we do need a little Christmas right this very minute. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, guys, and Merry Christmas. Well, it's fun to hear the three of you guys talk. We're definitely going to have to have Mark back, and maybe we can talk about some of his other books, like his Halloween one. Absolutely. Uh, 
I think uh, it was a lot of fun and, and I learned a lot of stuff. I, I love learning stuff about pop culture. Uh, I, I know a lot, but I've also forgotten a lot, but <laughs> there's, uh, there's always room for more and, and that was a lot of fun. And those guys have such a great uh, energy. It was really nice to talk to them. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I also thought it was interesting, you know, you guys had talked about Mrs. Claus a bit. One of the ones that I always thought stood out was the one from Rudolph where she, you know, she doesn't have white hair. She's not very cheery. She kind of has like this like weird Eastern European accent, which I thought was always strange, but that's, I mean, because she's so different than how she's generally depicted, I think that's the one that stands out to me. Yeah, yeah, it is sort of interesting. Um, I like the one where she was kind of young and hot too, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was good. But yeah, it's great to see Mark's book, Holly Jolly. It's out now. Definitely, definitely worth the purchase in my opinion and in yours as well. Um, So we'll definitely need to have him back to talk more. He's definitely a great guy and we'll definitely see more of Michael as well. Absolutely. Well, before we're done for this week, um, I know you have one final thing to say, which is this week's pick for the essential shelf. Yeah. And actually I have a little bit of a surprise for you. It's going to be a, We had talked about one before, but I came up with a different one because I like to shake things up. Okay, well, let me me hear it. So it's a Christmas-themed one. Uh, It's a collection of Batman stories by Frank Miller. And it's it's really great because it has the the famous Batman Year One, which is the first Batman story uh, Frank Miller does. And it's like an origin story with Dave Machuzelli art. And it also has The Dark Knight Returns, which is the classic 1986 you know, epic that really changed comic books and is already on the essential shelf. Mm-hmm. And then there's a rare third uh, story included, which is Wanted, Santa Claus Dead or Alive. And these are really the the, the main stories that Frank Miller did on Batman. Uh, you know, this is before All-Star Batman that he did with Jim Lee years later. So uh, these are from the classic era. You know, it's just such a great Christmas story. There's not that many uh, comic book stories about Christmas that I really truly love. This is one of them. The Spirit has, uh, by Will Eisner, has a few. Um, there's also a Superman one I, I like, and I, there's an, uh, a few of them, but this is the one that really stands out. So uh, if you can get a hold of this collection, uh, I highly recommend it. There's actually a really nice black leather hardbound edition um, that I have. Uh, that's a little harder to find, but you can find that. But there's also uh, a, uh, other editions with different formats. Gotcha. Well, I definitely want to get that leather one. That one sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. I got it back when it came out. And uh, it was it was really interesting because I, I think Batman Year One uh, is as good as Dark Knight Returns or maybe better. Uh, I actually like it, I think, more in a way it's sort of like a french connection version of batman it's like this really lean dark batman and it it foreshadows what christopher nolan was going to do with the character and then of course everybody knows dark knight returns and like i said that's a landmark must read and then this this third one is kind of a a modest uh story it's not uh, an epic by any means but it it's got a really nice texture to it. it it feels really strange in with the other two because they are like these uh you know, core parts of the the language of comic books at this mm-hmm. point. I think it's just a Christmas miracle that it made it in. And now <laughs> I think it's a, it's definitely worth revisiting. We'll definitely have to check that out. Can you remind me of the title one more time? Well, they, uh, it's called the Frank Miller Collection. Uh, the Batman story, uh, Wanted, Santa Claus Dead or Alive, mm-hmm. is one third of this book. It also has a 
the Dark Knight Returns, and it also has uh, Batman Year One, uh, and it's called the Frank Miller Collection, I believe. Great. Well, I'm going to have to ask Santa Claus for that this year. That'll be a great yeah, gift from him. Um, well, unless you have anything else, I think that's the end of the episode. I do have one thing I want to share with you, which is something to check out, which is a Christmas tradition for me, which is the first, I think, season of Batman the Animated Series called Christmas with the Joker. Ooh. Where he sings Jingle Bells at the very beginning and then rides a Christmas tree out of Arkham. Absolutely. I think that's the first episode. I think you're right. I think it's and, the very first episode, yeah, yeah. And it's such a revelation because uh, not only do you get the Joker singing, you know, the Batmobile. Uh, lost its wheel. Yeah, lost its wheels. Not only do you get uh, that rendition, but it's by Mark Hamill. You know? Yeah, um, yeah, which is great. And it was a revelation at the time because we didn't know that Mark Hamill could do that. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> very true. It came out. Yeah, it's yeah. actually interesting to think about. Not only are you getting Mark Hamill playing the Joker, getting Mark Hamill playing the Joker singing a riff on jingle bells exactly and this and and this this animated sensation i mean the the one look at that first episode and everybody knew that this was like the most interesting superhero animation since the fleischer fleischer brothers in the 40s you know oh uh, yeah definitely it was a real real powerful uh uh, uh debut that's for sure mm-hmm. but and that, uh, the music in that is just great oh yeah the music is fantastic uh you know uh, danny elfman who uh, gave us the also the Simpsons theme and the, the Batman theme and uh, so many through the years, but uh, that's one of the standouts for sure. Yeah, definitely. He's he's fantastic. He's like the John Williams of the TV intro verse. <laughs> yeah, it's superheroes and and uh, you know with all the Tim Burton work, he and Tim Burton have done mm-hmm. you know, so many things together. And Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, uh, which fe- features his vocals very prominently. Uh, great guy from Oingo Boingo and. You're right. I have to revisit that Batman cartoon now. I'm excited to see it again. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, so you, I'll check that out. You check out the complete Frank Miller Batman, which is the formal title. I just looked that up. And uh, you have yourself a merry little Christmas, although I'll talk to you before then. Yeah, I'll talk to you again next Tuesday, the week of Christmas. So I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good. All right, Jeff. Take care.